So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 in our study through the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has given his early followers their marching orders. He's given them their mission. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's ascended back to the Father. And after he got to the Father, he sent the Spirit on his early followers at Pentecost. Peter stands up at Pentecost and explains what happens, and he preaches the very first Christian sermon. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus in that setting, and the church is born. In the closing verses of chapter 2 that Tyler covered last week, Luke gave a summary passage to show us what that first church was like as they devoted themselves to the word, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the koinonia, by devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers and, and to a radical kind of generosity that ensured that none of them would go without. And so now they're running. Now they're running their race. They've got their baton in hand and they have begun. And they have begun here on the streets of Jerusalem. So what will happen in chapter 3 today, we're going to cover the whole chapter, is a miracle and a message. That's the content of chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole thing this morning. A miracle and a message. Wonder and then word. The healing of a lame beggar. And then Peter stands up again and delivers another sermon. Chapter 4, which we'll dive into next week, will, will show us the results of this sermon. And we will see both uh, receptivity as well as opposition. As thousands more come to faith in Jesus Christ and others, namely the religious leaders of the Jews, reject the message and begin to oppose the apostles and the church as they seek to live out their mission of being witnesses for Jesus. But we'll cover the results of this sermon next week. This morning is all about the reason for the sermon, which is the healing of the lame beggar, and the content of the sermon, which is comprised of an explanation of the miracle and an explanation of the gospel. So let's read Acts chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter, and by way of context, I also will go into the first four verses of chapter 4. This is God's Word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, 
all the people people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called solomon's and when peter saw it he addressed the people men of israel why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob the god of our fathers glorified his servant jesus whom you delivered over to delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. <coughs> Excuse me. Moses said, the Lord God will rise up for you, raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming to Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Let's pray. Our God, thank you so much for the privilege this morning of worshiping you. And we turn now in that same spirit of worship to your word and ask, Father, that you would attend to the reading of your word with your spirit to give us not just an understanding of what it means, but that we might apply it to our lives so that you would be glorified in us individually and corporately as the body of Christ we ask that you speak Father we pray this in Jesus name Amen so the main point of this text is this God is using his apostles specifically Peter here to perform a miraculous healing in order that his son Jesus Christ would be preached that 
Christ would be preached crucified and risen from the dead and that sinners would be called to repentance. And then carrying over into chapter 4, all of this occurs so that thousands more would come to faith in Christ and so that the church, the early church, and subsequently us, would begin to learn to learn how to engage in this mission even while be, being violently opposed. So we're going to cover the first part of that this morning just in chapter 3, that God uses the apostles to perform a miraculous healing in order to preach Christ crucified and risen and call sinners to repentance. And then next week, we'll unpack the second part of that as we look and begin to dive into chapter 4, that all of that occurs so that thousands more would come to faith in Christ and so that the church would begin to learn how to fulfill its mission while being opposed. So let's look first at the miracle itself, the healing of the lame man that is covered in the first 10 verses. Luke begins his account of this story by telling us that Peter and John are going into the temple at the ninth hour. This is three o'clock in the afternoon. This is the time of preparing for the evening sacrifice there in the temple. And as we learned last week, the early church was known for what? For going to the temple, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes day by day, day after day. And so that's exactly what they're doing. They are going into the temple to participate in the worship of Yahweh there in the temple. And there's a man there that Luke says was lame from birth. And he's being carried. And those who carry him lay him down outside the temple at the gate that is called the beautiful gate so that he might ask alms of those entering the temple. And we're told that this was happening daily. So think about what's been happening. We're told at the end of chapter 2 that the believers, including the apostles, were attending the temple daily. And daily, this man is being placed outside the temple at the gate called beautiful and so presumably day after day peter and john among the other apostles would have passed by this man would have seen him there maybe they saw him maybe they didn't see him but on this particular occasion we're told that peter and john direct their gaze at him almost as if God was sovereignly in control of this specific situation. They say to him, look at us. And of course the man does. Verse 5 says that he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And that's perfectly natural for this lame beggar, because that's what he was doing. He was asking for alms. He was asking for money. So it's natural that he would expect that they would give him what he's asking for, alms. But what does Peter say? Verse 6. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then there's the miracle. He takes him by the right hand and he raises him up. And we're told immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And by the way, remember, this man is not just lame. He's lame from birth. 
which means that there was something incomplete or defective about him physically from the womb. And so the fact that his feet and ankles were made strong is not just a miracle of healing, it's a miracle of creation. Whatever bones or whatever ligaments or whatever muscle tissue had to be put in place in order for his feet and ankles to be made strong was done. This was creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing in this very moment. And the result, verses 8 through 10, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. So that's the miracle. That's the wonder. Now before we move on to Peter's sermon, I want us to pause here and consider what we should take away, what we can take away from this miracle narrative and what we shouldn't take away from it. Is the working of this miracle merely descriptive of what occurred in this particular place at this particular time in redemptive history, in in, in church history? Or is this miracle a prescription for how the church should operate today? Tyler touched on this last week, and we're going to touch on this over and over again as we make our way through the book of Acts. Is Acts primarily descriptive or is is it also prescriptive? Is it only showing us what the church did in the first century or is it telling us what the church of the 21st century ought to do? All of Acts clearly, certainly is descriptive. It is describing what happened as Luke faithfully writes this for Theophilus. But it will be my contention that not all of Acts is prescriptive. Sometimes we will see the apostles and the church itself engage in activities and do things that are culturally defined by an historical context and shouldn't be things that we should seek to see continued today. Uh, Probably a really good example of that is what we saw last week when we saw that these early believers were attending the temple daily. That was what the early church did. Shouldn't we? Well, no, of course not. For lots of reasons, right? Number one, there's not a temple for us to meet in daily. Number two, we're not Jewish. And so we, we can't superimpose a, a Christian imperative on the church of the 21st century based on a Jewish cultural tradition of the first century. And so the question for us is, how do we determine when that which is descriptive is also prescriptive? And I don't think there's a magical formula for us to to work through that is going to uh, nail this down for us. We're just going to have to cover this situation by situation each week as we walk through the book of Acts. But as we do so, we're going to need to consider things like cultural context and historical context. We're going to need to consider things like whether or not the actions in question are repeated over and over again in the book of Acts as the church continues to operate, or is it an isolated and one-time event? We'll need to consider whether or not what is 
engaged in is something that is commanded elsewhere in the New Testament and the Apostles' writings. But the occasion here in Acts 3 of Peter healing this lame beggar is one of those actions of the early church where we need to answer that question. Is this just descriptive of something that happened or is this in some way intended to be normative for the church in the New Testament of all ages, including ours? If you come to church next Sunday and outside the doors there, as you make your way in, there is a man sitting there who is lame from birth. As you walk in, should you look to that person and say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? Should you do that? Well, I don't know. Depends on whether or not you have the gift of healing. After all, the gift of healing is one of the spiritual gifts that Paul talks to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12 as one of the gifts that's given to the body of Christ. And certainly, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we will see that many in the first century church, including most of the apostles, were in fact given this ability and given this spiritual gift because they healed people. There's evidence of that, just like we see here in Acts 3 with Peter. Now, we can argue about whether or not the gift of healing is still a gift that is given to some believers today or not. Are those certain what they're called sign gifts, the gift of working of miracles, uh, healings, the, the gift of speaking in tongues. We can argue about whether or not those are still active or whether they've ceased. Personally, I see no biblical reason, no good biblical reason at least, to, to lead me to believe that they have ceased. But my practical experience of how God seems to be operating in the church today seems as if they have ceased can god still give someone the supernatural ability to heal someone yes i believe that he can in my 56 young years has he no i have never seen that neither have i seen many of these other sign gifts used properly according to biblical standards now don't misunderstand me Please don't misunderstand me. Friends, God still heals people today. It, it happens all the time. Sometimes he uses the medical industry. Sometimes he uses doctors and, and surgeons. Sometimes God heals simply by answering the prayers of his children. And he superimposes a sovereign miracle in their bodies and makes them well. James, the brother of Jesus, who... Uh, by the way, later become pa became pastor of this church in Jerusalem. He, he writes in his epistle in James 5, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Friends, I take this as a promise straight from the black and white of Scripture that the prayer of faith will heal. Now, it's not always physical healing. 
In fact, earlier in James's letter, he's encouraging these early believers to be patient in suffering. Why does he need to encourage them to be patient in suffering if the prayer of faith always has a tangible and physical effect? So clearly, the, the healing that James is talking about in his letter is not always a physical healing. Sometimes it's a spiritual healing. After all, he says, your sins will be forgiven and the Lord will raise you up. But of course, we know that ultimately for the believer in Christ, we're promised complete healing in our resurrected bodies in the resurrection of the dead. So, friend, we can and we should pray for God to heal physically, emotionally, mentally, and yes, even spiritually. We don't obligate God to do what we ask him when we ask for healing, but God does sovereignly somehow utilize the prayers of his people as his sovereign means of healing people even today. So whether we call that the gift of healing or not is simply not important. What is important is that we see that the agent in these healings and the agent in this healing here in Acts chapter 3 is not man but God. It's not Peter. It's not John. The agent in any healing today is not ultimately man, but it is God who made the body. So, if you come to church next Sunday and you see a man outside that's lame from birth, should you say to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? Well, if you have the gift of healing, please do. Please do. But if you don't, then instead of saying what Peter said, perhaps you pray with that man. And you ask that God would heal him. Perhaps you help that man to find his way to medical professionals so that God might use medical knowledge and experience to heal him. And perhaps you share the gospel with him in hopes that God would heal him spiritually and save him from judgment and reconcile him back to himself by grace through faith in his son Jesus. Now, I want to move on because in my estimation of chapter 3, the miracle is not the point of this chapter. The the, the miracle in verses 1 through 10 is simply the occasion that gives rise to the point of this chapter, which is the sermon, the word, the message that God leads Peter to preach. So the lame beggar is healed. He's walking, leaping, praising God. All the people see it. They're filled with wonder and amazement. What happens? Peter and John go through the beautiful gate. They enter into the temple. This formerly lame beggar is clinging to them. He's hanging on to them. And it understandably draws a crowd. Verse 11, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, what's it? When Peter saw it, it is the occasion, the opportunity to preach the gospel. And so when, when Peter sees this, like this is it. This is what God is doing. This is why God made me look at that guy and, and make sure that I got his gaze. This is why now, of all days, every day I've been entering the temple, now this is why he made, made this happen, so that this opportunity would come about, to preach Christ to those who need Jesus. 
And so he sees it. He sees this opportunity to preach the gospel, and he seizes it. He addresses the people. And he addresses the people in two ways. First, in verses 11 through 16, he explains the miracle. And then in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, he explains the gospel. So he begins by explaining the miracle first by denying that it is apostolic power or piety that is the basis for this healing. Look at verse 12b. It says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? In other words, Peter makes it very clear to them that the power to heal did not come from them. It did not result in man. It was, it was not a result of, of his power nor was it a a result of his own good works or pious religiosity. Instead, Peter directs their attention to God. He says it's Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, who is the agent in this healing. So he says, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. In other words, the God of our ancestors is the agent here. It's not us. It's not the apostles. Don't look at us. Look at God. Look at Yahweh. He is the one who did this. He is the cause. God is the cause of this healing. But Peter, understanding what's going on here, understanding what's happening here, he knows that God has healed this man, not so that they can start a healing ministry in Jerusalem and so that all the other lame folks would get healed as well but that God had led them to heal this man in order to give an occasion for preaching about his son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter doesn't skip a beat here in verse 13. It says, to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, in other words, the God of our patriarchs, the God of Israel, did what? Glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter immediately bridges to preaching Christ and to the crowd that's gathered around them and he and he's as he does so his sermon accomplishes two things first it exalts Jesus and second it accuses his hearers of sin he exalts in the, in the remainder of this this part of the sermon he exalts Jesus and he accuses sinners of sin that's what he does it's remarkable He exalts Jesus as the suffering servant, now glorified, reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 and 53, God's servant who would come and offer himself on the cross, the suffering servant. He exalts Jesus as the suffering servant, now glorified. He exalts Jesus as the holy and righteous one, as the author of life, and as the one whom God had raised from the dead. He exalts And get this, he he magnifies Jesus in the hearts and minds of his hearers. That's what he wants to do. He wants to correct their understanding of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He's God. But then he also accuses them. He accuses them of sin, of delivering God's servant over to Pilate, of denying the holy and righteous one and asking for a murderer to be released instead. And he accuses them of killing the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So so the, the idea here is that the exaltation of Jesus in Peter's sermon 
is meant to draw the attention of the hearers to the true identity of Jesus. In essence, Peter says, Jesus is God's Son. He is the Messiah. Get that straight in your mind. And then at the same time, the accusation of his hearers is intended to bring on the full weight of the conviction of their sin. In essence, you killed Jesus the Son of God. And Peter seems to be highlighting here the, uh, the paradox or what some call the, the insanity of sin. Look at it. You could have had the one who is holy and righteous, without blemish, without any wrongdoing, perfectly good, perfectly right. You could have had him, but instead you asked for a murderer to be released. You asked for a, a, a murderer to be released on the streets with your children. And you could have had a holy and righteous one. You had in your presence the author of life and you killed him. The author of life, you took his life away. The insanity of sin is being put on display here. And the one whom you killed, the one whom you made dead... What did God do? He raised him from the dead. He made him not dead anymore. He's demonstrating here the insanity of sin, the incredible foolishness of sin. See, when we come to understand the true reality and identity of who God is on one hand, and in the next breath, we come to understand the reality of our disobedience and rebellion against him, we, we began to get come to grips with the, with the utter insanity of sin against a holy God. That's what he wants them to feel. That's what he wants them to think about. But the enemy is trying to keep us ignorant of that. The enemy is trying to keep us ignorant of the, the, the true identity of who God is. And he's trying to keep us ignorant of the reality of our sin and rebellion against God and how utterly ins insane it is to rebel against God. Why? So that we will continue to rebel against Him. That's why Peter later says in verse 17, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You didn't know that Jesus was God's servant as foretold by Isaiah. You didn't know that He was the Holy and righteous one you didn't know that he was the author of life you were ignorant but what's he saying here you're not ignorant anymore now you know but the exaltation of jesus here and the accusation of of sinners in this sermon now allows peter to explain how this man was healed verse 16 and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now I want us to break verse 16 down because it's kind of hard to wrap our mind around what exactly Peter is saying here, but it's absolutely critical. I think this is, this is one of the most critical verses in all of chapter 3. It's not the climax. The climax is coming, but it's, but it's the critical verse here. Peter's talking about Jesus. 
And he says that this man was made well by faith in Jesus' name. So there's two things there. There's the name of Jesus and there's faith. And, and so this is not saying that Jesus' name is some magical word that can be used to heal people. Just throw it out there in the name of Jesus and they'll be healed. But rather, what is operative in this case is faith. It is by faith in this name, or we could say it is by faith in the authority and power that is represented in the name of Jesus. But faith is the operative word here. And where does this faith come from? Look at the end of verse 16. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this is faith or, or belief in Jesus' name, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. And this faith is through Jesus. It comes from Jesus. It is Jesus' faith given to Peter, exercised in the name of Jesus, that has made this man well. Now, hang on to that, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. So that's the explanation of the miracle. Now Peter moves on in his sermon to an explanation of the gospel in verses 17 and following. Again, Peter refers to his hearer's role in the crucifixion of Jesus as one of ignorance. Now that doesn't mean that, that they were not accountable for their sin of ignorance, but it does mean that they are no longer ignorant. Peter is abolishing their ignorance about Jesus' true identity and their culpability as sinners before God. They are no longer ignorant about that. Why? Why does, why does he want them, want to abolish their ignorance about that so that they might be cut to the heart as his hearers were at Pentecost? So that they might feel the full weight of the insanity of their sin so that they might be brought to a full conviction of their depraved condition apart from God. So God is using Peter's sermon here to bring them to a place where they see their desperate need for rescue. God is using Peter's sermon here to, in essence, remind them that they are the lame beggar standing outside the temple, unable to get in, broken, helpless, hopeless, begging for alms to try to make their life better when what they really need is not just legs, new legs, but a new heart. And then he reminds them in verse 18 that God is sovereign in all of this. So, so verse, eight, verse 17, you acted in ignorance when you killed Jesus. And then verse 18, God, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, namely that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So just like he did in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter explains to his hearers that while they are responsible for their sin in killing Jesus, God is still sovereign over the death of his son. Why? 
Why would he do that? Because he had a purpose. He had a reason for sending his son and offering his son as a sacrifice on the cross. And that purpose was to save sinners like you and I who deserved judgment. That his son Jesus would take the punishment that we deserved and that we might be saved. But as is the case throughout all of the Gospels and throughout all of the book of Acts and even throughout all of the, the apostles' teaching in the rest of the New Testament, this good news, this Gospel, is one to which we must respond. And the only saving response to the Gospel, biblically, is repentance and faith. Verse 19 is the climax of Peter's sermon and the climax of chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. How are sins, sinners like us forgiven? Repentance and faith. Repentance, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is, is a change of mind. A change of mind about what? About the identity of Christ. See, see Peter, <clears throat> Peter is exhorting his hearers to change their mind about the identity of Jesus. That he's not just a good moral teacher. He's not some crazy guy that, that, that's, that's blaspheming God. He is the author of life. He is the holy and righteous one. He is God's servant as promised through prophet Isaiah. He is the son of God whom God has raised from the dead. He wanted them to change their mind about who Jesus is and he wanted them to change their mind about their own sin. He wanted them to come to the full conviction that they have denied Jesus, that they have rejected Jesus, and they have killed Jesus. Repentance and faith. And again, faith is simply the noun form of the Greek verb to believe. And that's what we saw in verse 16. It was faith that was operative in the healing of that lame beggar. And that faith was Jesus' faith given to Peter, exercised in the name of Jesus, that made the lame beggar walk again. Friend, apart from Christ, we're not just spiritually lame beggars, we are spiritually dead beggars. We are ignorantly asking for alms to, to try to make our lives better in the here and now when what we really need is not just new legs, but new life. We need to be born again. And we are born again when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for forgiveness. Peter goes on to describe three results of repentance and faith. First, he says that uh, re repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. The picture here is that of an irremovable stain that's blotted out. Just like, it's done. It's not there anymore. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has our God removed our transgressions from us. Aren't you glad about that? 
to the one who's been given new life in Christ, who's, who's repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone. Paul says in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're set free from our bondage to sin and eternal death. We are set free from the judgment that we deserve. Condemned no more, praise God. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friend, if you have repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ alone, Christ crucified and risen again, then the stain of your sin has been removed. That irremovable sin, stain of sin, has been blotted out. It's not even there, not even a, not even a, 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 a iota of it. It's gone and it will never return, praise God. But if you've never repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ alone for rescue, then the stain of your sin remains on you. And there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. And you will not, and you cannot enter heaven with that stain. So new life in Christ, the repentance and faith, results first in, the, in this irremovable stain being blotted out. Secondly, it results in times of refreshing. Look at verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I take that to refer to our walk with Christ in this life. That no matter what life throws at us, the Lord's with us. And we can enjoy His presence because He promised to never leave us or forsake us. This reminds me of Jesus' promises to His followers in Matthew 11 when He says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you jesus says and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart this is the king of the universe he says you will find rest for your souls why for my yoke is easy and my burden is light my friend that's just a promise for those who have placed their faith in jesus because it is for those who repent and believe so if you haven't, if you haven't turned from your sin and self-rule and turned to Christ and his rule over you and trusted in him as your only hope for rescue, then you have no promise of times of refreshing. But rather, friend, you're on your own. And you have no easy yoke. And you have no light burden. And then thirdly, those who experience this new birth through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ this results thirdly in the promise of eternal reward and the restoration one day of all things look at the end of verse 20 and, the verse, and then verse 21 and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus and this 
can't refer to the first coming of Jesus. It's got to refer this to the second coming of Jesus because he qualifies the sending of Christ now in verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter's pointing them to an eschatological future when Jesus will return as not the suffering servant this time, but as the conquering king. And he will set up his eternal kingdom and he will make all things new and we will experience the restoration of all things for his glory. And he says that God spoke about this through his prophets long ago and then he gives examples in verses 22 through 24. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to, to that prophet, that is Jesus, shall be destroyed from the temple from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days these final days where we will experience the restoration of all things and then Peter finishes his sermon by reminding them that those who will enjoy the restoration of all things in that end time this final and eternal reward is not just Israel but all nations. Verses 25 and 26, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and here's the quote from Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And that's going to be the flow of the expansion of the gospel as we walk our way through the book of Acts. It'll happen first among the Jews in Jerusalem and then the surrounding region of Judea, but it won't stop there because God's aim has always been the nation. It will extend to Samaria and Antioch and Corinth and Rome and to the ends of the earth such that all nations will hear. I want to close our time by suggesting a handful of applications to this passage, some that we've teased out as we walk through this, some that we've, that we've hinted at as we've walked through the passage. Three, pri uh, three secondary applications and one primary application. First, the secondary application. Believe that God still heals. God is still in the business of healing. Don't have such a closed-off mind about the work of the Spirit that you deny that Jesus is able to heal people today. Pray for healing. Yourself, your friends, people in the church, people in your neighborhood, pray for God to heal, but recognize that God is the agent in that healing, not man. God is the agent, and so he deserves all the credit and thanks. For any healing that occurs secondly as we hear peter in this sermon exalt jesus friend we ought to be led to exalt jesus as well to exalt him as the suffering servant promised from isaiah who was glorified at the right hand of god exalt him as the holy and righteous one who was denied before pilate exalt him as the author of life who was killed so that we could live let us not, church, let us not grow ignorant or blind or apathetic 
or complacent about the true identity of Jesus, but let us be a people who with each passing year we are growing and growing and growing in our awe of the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us magnify Jesus here in the church in one another's hearts and minds. Let's exalt Jesus. And then thirdly, let us be convinced of the insanity of sin. Just as Peter intended for his hearers to to understand how utterly insane and paradoxical it was for them to sin against Jesus, so we ought to grow in our awareness of how insane and foolish and senseless and irrational and illogical is our sin against a holy and righteous and gracious and loving and perfect and just God. It's insane. Let us repent of our sins. It's insane. But there's a primary application to this passage, and I'll divide this between the primary application to to believers first and then to unbelievers. First, for those here who have placed their faith in Christ, you've turned from sin and self-rule, and God has walked you across the line of faith. He has given you the faith, the trust in Jesus, and you have become a new person in Christ. Here's the primary application for you. Be overwhelmed by God's sovereign grace to you. Be overwhelmed by it. You and I were lame beggars sitting outside the temple, unable to go in because we're broken, helpless and hopeless. We sat outside every day and in ignorance asked for alms to make our life better when what we really needed was not just new legs but new life spiritual life and God sent his son Jesus Christ to give us that new life and Jesus gave us the faith to repent and believe on him and by grace through faith he's made us well he's made us whole He's mended what is broken. He's given us new spiritual life. He's blotted out that irremovable stain. It is no more. We sit today in times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And friend, one day soon he will return and we will see and experience the restoration of all things for his glory. And none of this is something we deserve. None of this is ours because of anything in us, but rather a result of God's sovereign and good grace to us. Church, let us never fail to be overwhelmed at God's grace shown to sinners like us. But then the converse of this for those who have not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. For you, the primary application is to be overwhelmed by what you deserve because of your sin. That's what Peter would have you walk away with today. Be utterly undone by what you rightly deserve because of your sin and rebellion against a holy and righteous God. You are no less accountable for your sin and rebellion against God than these who killed Jesus and yelled for his crucifixion just weeks ago. 
you are spiritually dead because of your sin against God. And if you die apart from God, granting you new life in Christ, you will spend eternity apart from Him in a very real place that the Bible calls hell. You may not like that. That may offend you. You may not want that. I wouldn't either. But friend, on the authority of God's Word, that is both what you deserve and what you will get unless you repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone to rescue you. And so I beg of you, be reconciled to this God who loved you enough to send His Son Jesus for you. Be reconciled to Him by turning away from your sin and your self-rule and turning in faith to Christ trusting that he lived for you he died for you he rose for you trust in christ alone as your lord your rescuer and your redeemer let's pray god we return thanks to you for this precious book that we hold in our hands and how you just sovereignly lead us to encounter you on its pages. Father, we pray for those among us in this room who've never repented of their sins or trusted in Christ. Maybe they've been in church all their life. Maybe they've been active in lots of different religious traditions and activities and practices. But they've never turned from their sin and placed 100% of their faith in you. God, would you give them the faith right now to trust in Christ alone? It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about saying a particular prayer. It's simply by them repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ as their only hope to be saved. Would you give them that new life in Christ, Father? And Father, for those of us whom you have saved by grace through faith, Prevent us, Lord, from ever losing our gratitude and our sense of being overwhelmed at your grace. We are so thankful that you have removed the irremovable stain and that one day you will return in, again in glory to receive us to yourself as you restore all things and make all things new. We don't deserve that. Every single one of us whom you've saved by grace through faith, Lord, we know how utterly sinful we are. We know that we don't deserve that. We are so thankful. Help us, Father, to never lose sight of the good news of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.